Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hello, friends. It is really my pleasure to introduce our guest today. I am a I'm kind of a, a secret fan. Well, not so secret, I guess, <laughs> but a big, big fan of Megan Carnarius. And Megan is an RN. She is a nursing home administrator, and she also is a licensed massage therapist. She is the founder and principal of Memory Care Consulting, LLC, and she wrote a book. And I have to tell you, this is probably one of my favorite books out there addressing Alzheimer's. And so the name of the book, the title of the book is A Deeper Perspective on Alzheimer's and Other Dementias, Practical Tools with Spiritual Insights. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. I am thrilled. This is going to be a fantastic talk that we're going to have today. First, what I would love to do is get an idea and give for myself and our listeners. I would love to hear a little about what brought you into the world of working with people who have memory impairment. Tell us a little about your personal story. Okay, so when I was five, my mom had another daughter, so there's three sisters, and my youngest sister ended up having some mild disabilities, and they were many of them were things that were caught early, so she had clubbed feet and a hip not formed and crossed eyes, low thyroid, but I was going along for all the appointments, and I... I felt so bad because she would be getting blood draws every week and she was really difficult to get blood from and she would be wailing and I would be like holding on to my mom's leg sitting on the floor with each of these appointments and I just felt like it was unfair like I didn't really understand what was happening and I thought it was awful and so there's been this thing about underdogs and people not really being understood and things needing to be fairer (laughs) that is like been my whole life. So I really feel like it was a gift. This younger sister has ended up being a real gift in my life. And she's done so well. And she's exceeded everyone's expectations. She just graduated from community college six weeks ago with her associate's degree. And it's like blows us away. So she's she's doing great. But that, that was the beginning. And then I also had a family physician that was really unusual. And he was the president of the Homeopathic Society in America. And he would go and deliver Amish babies in their homes because we grew up in Lancaster County. And he was a good friend of my mother's. And my mother was a mental health counselor. And then he was this physician. And so sometimes they shared clients and they'd be working with people trying to help them. And his whole thing about, you know, I'd be sick with something and he would say to me, why are you sick? You know, when I was eight, nine, I'd look at him like, I don't know. But it made me think about that. And so that line between what is wellness? And when does something become unwell? And then how do we work with bringing it back to wellness or continuing it on and returning to wellness? What needs to happen with dealing with people? 
So he ended up being the medical director of a residential school that was near where my family lived. And it's called the Camp Hill Communities. It's a worldwide network of residential schools for children and then farms and sheltered workshops for adults. And it's based on Rudolf Steiner and Waldorf schools. So if you're familiar with Waldorf schools, what I earned was a certificate in special education Waldorf teaching in that four years. So when I left high school, that's where I went. And it was going to be like a year off for me to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. But I found it so fascinating, (laughs) really riveting. And I had a group of children that I cared for. So I was a direct caregiver for the school year. And I was responsible six and a half days a week for these children. So I only had an afternoon off. So as an 18-year-old, that was kind of intense between 18 and 21. And I earned $50 a month. And I was living with all these Europeans. And I ended up going to Europe for a year, working in some of these different communities. And I saw this amazing massage technique being used. And I really wanted to learn that. And so in order to get into that school in Germany, after I finished that four years, I went to nursing school so that I had a medical background as well as this special education background. And then I got accepted in the school in Germany. And so I went to massage school. So I lived in Europe for another two and a half years. So that was a total of three and a half years. And I went to the massage school and I also learned hydrotherapy. And I think it's an incredible modality and they used essential oils. So all of those things were just part of what they did. And then I went to painting school when I wasn't going to massage school because they taught it like a month, very intensive. And then you'd have two months off, month, very intensive, two months off. So I, so I went to painting school and I'd always had this thing. Should I do art? Should I do psychology? You know, what am I doing? So I decided to move back to Boulder after all of that. I'd grown up in Pennsylvania, but Boulder had the best massage school in the country. I wanted to get certified in the United States. And so I ended up coming to Boulder and I worked in the nursing home of how not to do everything. It was terrible. It was terrible. And so I'm making phone calls to like Ireland and Germany and Switzerland. Like, I want to get out. I want to go back as soon as I'm done with school. But I met this woman who was our HR professional for our building, our staff development person in this terrible nursing home. And she said, oh, there's a new company coming to town and they're going to have an Alzheimer's program. So it was the first Alzheimer's program in Boulder County that was secure memory care. And the company had done a lot of research on the East Coast. So they had all the best practice things in place really early. So this is 1989, I ended up interviewing and getting that position. So I opened the first memory care unit in Boulder County. And I ran that for six and a half years. And they were already on the thing of you have to have a specialized design. You have to have staff trained on behavior and communication approaches. You need support groups for the families. You need ongoing education for everybody. You have to have a structure for the day. You need to have a really solid activity program. Like there were all these things that they had understood, you know, needs to be in place. And I started working with a massage school to bring interns in to do massage with the residents. And I opened, I did aromatherapy programs for the residents and staff and wrote articles in nursing magazines and aromatherapy organizations. And then I started getting interns from Naropa University, which is a Buddhist college in Boulder. And so 
We had movement therapists, art therapists, chaplain interns. We had this like incredibly rich specialization in how do we create a better quality of life for people that are here. And in that era, there was still no medication for anything. Like they were using old fashioned psychiatric drugs. They tended to use heavier doses. We were coming off the era of over medicating people. So that was, there had been some laws changed and facilities were really being corralled around stop restraining people, stop over medicating people. You know, how can we do that? What do we need to do? So, so it was really wonderful to have a space where people didn't know quite what to do with these people. But if I could use different approaches and therapies and try to help people have a quality of life that their families recognized, the resident relaxed into, the staff felt like they were being effective. And I'll, I'll just give you one simple example. So my unit was next to the Medicare wing. So that tended to have the higher acuity and nurses over there. And then we had my unit where people were still trying to get used to what is this? What is this memory care unit? So we would have people that looked as if they had headaches and they couldn't tell us. And I would be like, something's not right. And I called the physicians and I said, and this is always a great way to say it. Well, I'm a nurse. And when I was in Europe studying, the nurses there use dry mustard foot baths to help people's headaches. And I'm wondering if you can give me orders for the residents that we can do dry mustard foot baths. And you know, it causes accentuated vasodilation and then vasoconstriction in the lower extremities, which changes the blood flow to the head. So if it's a pressure headache from, you know, blood flow or something's going on, it can really soothe someone. And it's also just a really lovely thing to do. So I started getting all these foot bath orders. And then the nurses got mad at me because they're like, I don't have time for that. I don't know what you're talking about. Why don't you just give them a Tylenol? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, no. And I was trying to help people understand you are the therapeutic agent. Your presence, your essence is something that makes a real difference to someone else. And if you give yourself a chance, this took 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I taught them all about how to create relaxation so the person isn't making really any efforts at all and how you simplify all your movements. So you have the towel under the foot bath. When you pull the foot bath out, you wrap the person's foot, you know, how you put lotion on it, all that. And then I started having the nurses coming to me and telling me so-and-so needed a foot bath order. It was hilarious. And so it was really great to give physicians something to do other than a pill and give nurses something to do other than just passing meds. And the yeah, it was a really, really fun experience. So the company ended up making me, you know, work with other buildings around the country. And I, at one point, had about 400 residents that were registered in the aromatherapy programs and the massage programs. And I was teaching staff how to do those techniques in a really simple layman way, just sweet, safe way of doing it. And then I got approached about designing a memory care assisted living. And I've always been really interested in design. And I, and I went to every class at the national conferences in Chicago with the Alzheimer's Association about design, read books, talk to people, draw house plans every night, get on an airplane with people and say, what kind of house do you want? And in the plane ride, design the building and then hand it to them when they're getting off the plane. I just love that. So I designed what was called Wellspring and the company name branded it Juniper Village. So it's Juniper Village, their Wellspring program now. 
And we built two buildings from the ground. And I helped with all the design features and like really putting as many therapeutic elements in it as possible and wrote all the policies and procedures and then trained all the staff and held the, you know, executive director position, the nurse position as we were, you know, turning that into who's the long-term person that's going to be there. So that was a wonderful project. And then I had a chance to work for Pinion Management. And Pinion, Pinion was well known in the state of Colorado as being person-centered, cutting edge, managing nursing homes that maybe had a younger MS population or had a mix of cultures or was rural and really had to take everyone because of the rural setting. So they were good at working with mental health issues and young people and trying to promote kind of award-winning best practices in buildings that might have been Medicaid and really didn't have a lot of funding and trying to get the health department in the state to recognize good practice and reward people. So if there was more funding that could come to those buildings because they were doing a good job, how could we organize that? So the owner of that company, Jeff Jurepker, was really well known for some of those innovative ideas. So I ended up leaving when the buildings were built and, you know, everything was set up and then being able to work with this management company. And they had about 25 buildings that they managed between New Mexico and Colorado. And I was able to help them with converting nursing home wings, remodeling them, building courtyards and creating memory care programs, and then training all the staff. So I was their Alzheimer's specialist, as well as being their regional nurse. So I worked with administrators on quality assurance things and, you know, those regular things. But I was also the one driving all the memory care training. And I worked with the Alzheimer's Association on their education committee for 15 years and helped create conferences and do things like that. And then my mother ended up getting very ill. It was very challenging. And I was flying back and forth to Pennsylvania. And she was only 63 when she had a really severe stroke from having foot surgery and they didn't give her a blood thinner after the surgery. So she ended up with a clot in her carotid and was paralyzed on one side. And we went through all kinds of things. It was like an odyssey for nine years and a company in Louisville, which is about seven miles from here was going to build building a building. And then the person that I had worked for that HR person way back then she called me and said, we're planning on buying a very poorly run memory care building. The building is solid. The building's a good building, good design, but it's been very badly run and they have 32 deficiencies with the health department. And so I ended up coming on board and because I had worked for Pinion, Pinion had done monitoring for the health department. So when a building was poorly run, they would go in and help the owners correct the problems. And so I'd learned over and over again, what do you hit first? Like not getting overwhelmed, like how do you triage this and really make a difference? And so I went into that building and 90 days later, we had one deficiency and we got resurveyed and it was me not finishing all the care plans. <laughs> it was a really intense, intense thing. And my mom passed in that period of time and I fell down the stairs and shattered my foot and I was in a wheelchair and it was just, so incredible, but that was a fabulous experience for me running that building. So I ran that building for 14 years. Wow. I, most, of, most of my staff was with me for 10 to 14 years. 
which is incredible. So we had amazing, amazing team. And we had 52 residents, 52 employees, pretty much. And then we had an adult day program. So I had 10 to 12 people that were taking turns visiting and depending on what their life was doing, you know, how much they came and visited or moved in or whatever. And, and then I was giving lectures all the time. I would always do public lectures. I was doing things for the Alzheimer's Association, whatever. And I started having families coming up to me saying, you're really interesting in the way you talk about this. And we really wish you would write it down. Would you write a book? So they kept saying that. So I don't think of myself as a writer, but I have enjoyed it, actually. And it took me 13 years, ridiculously, to write the first book. And so I'm so grateful when it got finished. And, and I really felt like I made the effort to find that balance between this is so hard and there's grief and there's adjustments and there's really difficult learning, like sandpaper learning where it makes you, it builds your character, it helps you grow, but it's really, it rubs, it's really hard. But I also wanted to address what I was seeing. And I saw a lot of fallout blessings, positive things happening, people healing things from their life. And I wasn't hearing people talking about it. And I'm like, this is part of this picture too. Like there's so much life before we're gone. And why are we minimizing it this this in this way that people are declining and it's never ending funeral and my person isn't the way they were. I don't. And I was like, what? The essence of us is eternal. And that soul within us is a whole healthy self that's having a handicapping experience. So how do we continue to have a connection to that person? And there, yeah, there are just so many examples of that. So I was really happy with how it turned out, but, it, but I felt like I think that got conveyed in a really respectful way because I don't want to be Pollyannish. I don't want to minimize anything, but I also want to balance it. Thank you. Oh man, Megan, you said so much. And I, I want to, we're going to deep dive definitely <laughs> into more because this is, you know, I have to tell the audience, I, I told you this before we started recording, but so I met you, you were presenting at the Alzheimer's Association conference in Seattle gosh, I don't even know how many years, eight years ago, I don't even know. But talk about refreshing your perspective and your, the things that you talked about, I, I felt like were exactly what has been missing from the conversation about Alzheimer's and dementia. And what I mean by that is exactly what you just addressed is, the, I love the title of your book, because it's exactly it hits, it nails it. And that is looking at the deeper perspective on what is happening spiritually? What is happening emotionally? What is happening happening on a whole other level with not just the person who has memory impairment, but their families and the family unit? And talk about an important book and an important topic. This is really what is missing, I think, from the, the sort of mainstream medical conversation about Alzheimer's disease and dementia. I want to kind of bring back, because you said so many things, I was jotting little notes down here. One of the things I, I, that I want to highlight here is your experience in turning, first of all, the, the time that you were doing it, late 80s, early 90s, it sounds like that time period when you really got into, yeah, I can, I can only imagine, because I know how it is now, we know how it is now, and how 
your hands are tied. People's hands are tied. Administrators' hands are tied. You know, all the state regulations and all the hoops that need to be jumped through. And so you miss so many facilities, even those facilities that truly have the best interests of their residents and their families, their hands are so tied to try these new approaches. And because it takes time, what it what did you say? You said you are the therapeutic agent. I love that because I think so many healthcare professionals go into the field feeling that way and believing that. And by the time they're kind of spit out of school and onto their job and going through their programs, that gets lost. And so the fact that you were so intentional in building those programs and introducing outside perspectives and outside ideas and non-mainstream ways of thinking, I'm just blown away and so grateful because that seed that you planted obviously is a ripple effect. It was a ripple effect to your residents, your families, your staff. It clearly was a ripple effect in you being recruited to continue the work. And now you've written a book that is going to influence people as well. And so that's my little little soapbox of gratitude <laughs> for you and oh, your moving in. But really, so yeah. I, I again I, I don't want I want to emphasize how challenging that must have been in some ways because regulations were changing to not over-medicate people, to not restrain them. I remember when I was a little girl going to the hospital with my mom and hanging out in the nursing home. It was very common to have those wheelchairs that have the tray that snap on so no one can get out and, you know, all of the practices back then. But you were presented with a unique challenge in not being able to use those tools, but also not, you weren't given a menu of solutions or ideas. You, you had to come up with it yourself, it sounds like. Right. Right. And I think you never know going forward, like you throw this thread out of your destiny and you get attracted to something or something interests you. And people would look at me and like, what are you doing now? Like, what? You were doing special education. Now, now you're doing nursing. Oh, I get the nursing. Oh, now you're doing massage and hydrotherapy and painting. Now you're running an Alzheimer's program. And people couldn't get like, what? how does this all fit? But when you really look at what people with memory loss need, it was absolutely the correct things to be pulling together. Because when you have special needs children, they did not have this opportunity for a full life. They are starting out with things that are challenging them and difficult. And the thing that I love about the Camp Hill movement, it was believing in the whole soul and spirit of the person. And that in this incarnation, and it doesn't even matter if you don't believe in reincarnation, but if you just believe, how do we make this person's life experience the best it can be? So they wanted to take people out of institutions and bring them into a household with other children, with other people with special needs, and create community. And they wanted it to be as natural as possible. So having gardens and being having houses in the woods and you know going on adventures and eating organic vegetarian food. And you know, they just were trying to expose the children to all kinds of things. And you look now at some of the research around. ADHD and trying not to have kids eat too much sugar. Like they were already years ago saying, we notice that our children do better on a balanced diet with lots of sunshine and right. all of these things. And so there were these tiny steps that they felt were really important. Like, who are you 
And what are you working inside on yourself that is going to have an impact on your child? So even though they're in the next room in their little dormitory, if your shoes are thrown all over your room as an 18-year-old teenager working in that program, they're like, Megan, get yourself together. You are not together. And this influences your children. And I would be kind of like, what? You know, why would my shoes make a difference? But if I'm trying to teach my kids how to put things away when they're done with them, I have to embody that. So there were all these like little learnings along the way about what is it to be therapeutic? What is it to think about what is someone's next step in growth? And how do I support that step? And so what we're doing with memory care is we're revisiting that in reverse. So what are the things that we want to honor and emphasize and have people have those moments of joy with something that's been really familiar to them? And how do we make sure we're bringing it to them and that we're facilitating that? And I am so discouraged at times. I'm encouraged many times, but I'm also so discouraged by the lackluster activities that I see going on in memory care buildings and feeling like, what? I mean, there's so much stuff we could do that's really wonderful and fun. And I think sometimes leadership doesn't understand how amazing memory care can be and that people sort of are okay with running the mill and sort of, well, everyone's safe. Nobody's oversleeping. You know, they're, they're eating. They're, and, and I just, I was having a whole conversation yesterday with someone I worked with for 14 years And we were talking about the lack of really good leadership in these areas right now. And that COVID has impacted these buildings so much and they're having terrible staffing crises. And then they feel they can't make expectations clear or make people accountable because they can just quit and go down the street. And that also they're not doing a good job with education. They're doing lip service. So on their marketing material, it says, They're all specialized in Alzheimer's training. But when I actually talk to people, because I do healthcare monitoring, so I go into facilities that have had bad surveys and I help them recover with their plan of correction. So I'm interviewing staff and I'm watching what's going on and I meet with families and it's all over their marketing material that they're trained. And then I talk to people and they haven't had any training in two years. Or or they've sat in front of a computer for an hour and that's Right, and that was it. Yeah. And so I'm mourning, I'm mourning that because there were people that were, that loved this work, that wanted to really do a good job. I think there are people still out there for sure, but I think they aren't really supported in the same way. And I don't think sometimes companies understand the traction of a passionate personality. So if someone loves what they're doing and they're trying to do a good job, the staff starts wanting to participate in that process. But if they're being treated like, well, we can replace you and, you know, your budget's too high and I don't, you know, we can't have activities on the weekend because, and you're saying it should be seven days a week. It doesn't matter what day it is. And someone who doesn't understand dementia is making decisions about the budget and says, no, you you have to have one of your caregivers do it on Saturday and Sunday. And then the whole program degrades, you know, and then you see people leaving and you see people disappointed. I went to one building and there were all these beautiful young girls that were caregivers. So it was, you know, we weren't seeing the married mothers and things like that. We were seeing, you know, this age group that's just young and rosy cheek. And so on one hand, you can throw your hands up and say, you know, they don't have enough life experience. I cannot teach these people. On the other hand, it's like this pregnant moment of I could 
inspired. I could help them. I could get them feeling confident and competent. I could get them really excited about this amazing field. And the leadership wasn't doing it. And we had 150% turnover in 12 months. Oh my gosh. You're st- you're just bringing up such good points. And I, I see that too. I mean, from my own field, I'm a counselor, licensed mental health counselor, and there are no mentors. There are no, no one to model for any of us in any of the fields that work with the aging population, especially with memory impairment is so few and far between. And so I love that you're calling this out and I can see the discouragement. I also see that after COVID, there's a crisis happening in our country everywhere, a shortage of caregivers. And and we can dissect why that is, you know, are they not being paid enough? Is it a a profession that's not being respected? Is it this or that, or, you know, whatever. And the reality is we still need quality, compassionate care for our elders. And, oh, there's this quote. I, I totally cannot remember this quote or who it was, but it was something to the effect of, you can judge a society based on how they treat their elders. And I'll have to look at it, try to find that, but, but it really is a reflection of who we are ultimately. And you, again, your perspective, I love so much because you speak to that in a way of, like you said, whether you know, we're born into this life now for a purpose or a reason. And what is that? How can we be our best selves? How can we live our lives the best way possible? And also how can we have that impact on others? Like, like I mentioned earlier, the work that you've done has had such a ripple effect on so many you'll never even know. And that's the work that caregivers are providing, whether you're a professional caregiver or you're a family member. Yeah. Right. And I, I think we should have another conversation. I think we should do another podcast. On that okay. whole thing, I think it would really be interesting. Mm-hmm. But the thing about being a therapeutic presence for somebody with dementia, and I understand when families are more, they have the long-term connection and they have the difference. What's the difference right now? And one of the things I talk to families about is not feeling like a failure when you need help, but feeling like you're sharing your loved one. Because when you have there are people that get a chance to be with that person, it enriches their life and they bring a perspective of meeting the person now and still being able to form a connection to them. So even though you might be aware of all the things that they were and be saddened by where you are now, it's refreshing for you to have the experience of someone meeting them and really loving them or appreciating them right now the way they are. And then the family's gift is giving that person history, giving that person a sense of context. What was this person's experience? What were they interested in? And then finding ways to bring that into the day-to-day moments with them. So I think there's so many, oh, there's so many ways that we can share people and really bring things to that person that enriches everyone's life. You know, and I used to tell families when they came in the building, I love hearing about what's going on with your tomato garden or that your daughter just got married and you went and had, you know, had a great time in the wedding and saw people because sometimes I feel like secure settings or like ships at sea, like we're on this journey and sometimes you feel isolated and the building, you know, I hear so many times from people, Oh, we're the unfortunate stepchild or 
nobody cares about us. And so there's a physical challenge with the secure doors that affect it. But it's also, you know, all, often the skilled areas of buildings, so in, con- in communities that have a continuum, there's this kind of level of urgency around physical need. And people are more drawn to tasks. And that seems more concrete so that they kind of know how to deal with the physical stuff. And then if you have regular assisted living and you have independent living, you have people on the continuum who maybe have some memory loss and the staff might be really good at interacting with them, but there's still a lot of that person still being employed by themselves. Like they're still connecting, they're still initiating, they may have trouble here or be vague here, but they're still consistently themselves, which helps drive the relationship. People can figure out ways to connect. And then when you really need memory care, it starts being more difficult and then those doors make it harder. And then what's the atmosphere on that unit? And so one of the things I've always tried to do with design is to say, well, how do we make this inviting? How do we make it feel normal for people to visit? What is there for people to do when they visit? How can they have a little privacy or be able to go for a walk and be in a garden that has changes of scene? and allows that short-term memory tension to kind of drop away? How can they participate in meals or activities? How can they come to events so that you can include them and not be, you know, sardines in too small a dining room? Like, how do we create spaces that allow small, large, intimate, extroverted, introverted, you know, all those different kinds of spaces to allow people to visit? And so I think if we do a good job with that, and now certainly COVID has affected no visiting and people being too isolated. I think the I, the last report I heard was death rate among people with dementia is at 44% higher than it's ever been. And so they really feel that was COVID and that people weren't dying from COVID. They were dying from declining from isolation. And I just think that's going to be, that might be another podcast. I don't know. But, <laughs> Where to come from? <laughs> I love it. Megan. Yeah, I really, I mean, that's, obviously that's what's up on everyone's minds is we feel it innately you know it, it feels not right to, to know that our older adults especially those that can't advocate for themselves are being isolated i wanted to ask you kind of diving into the book a little bit and your and your philosophy and i mean this is the part i just love so much can you talk a little bit about so one thing that really strikes me is i love your way of reframing things, you know, just like the example that you shared about sharing your loved one with others. That it isn't because if a caregiver is burned out and they have no other choice but to ask for help, it, the reframe is it's an opportunity for others in the community or family to get to learn and experience and grow with this person. And it's an opportunity for the person with memory impairment to be around others and have variety in, in their socialization as well. So can you speak a little bit to, I'm thinking about quality of life for caregivers and especially those caregivers that are caring for their loved one at home or or not. I mean, again, there are so many people, many, many of our listeners have loved ones that live in memory care facilities as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about two different groups. So you have the spouses and then you have family members or friends caring for someone. And when you have the spousal situation, what's more challenging in that is that they built the life together and they each had roles in it that they're familiar with that are very deeply embedded in the way they function. 
And if both people are aging, and now this person has dementia on top of it, sometimes the spouse, even though they were at the doctor's office when the diagnosis was made, and even though they're experiencing it, sometimes it's very hard for them to stay attuned or aware of what's different. And they kind of find themselves slipping into how it always had been and getting either irritated or very depressed. So it's kind of like the gnat that keeps bugging them. Like one simple example, I had a couple where the man always answered the phone in the apartment, like their whole married life. He was the one who would always answer the phone when he was home. And so he continued to do that when they retired, but then he started getting Alzheimer's and he wouldn't answer it or he wouldn't remember who called. And it was, she was like, answer the phone, you know, what guy, answer the phone. And then he would answer it and like, who is it? I, I have no idea. And I said, can you just one, maybe answer the phone sometimes? Or can you tell your friends to say who they are and to, when they call so that then he can let you know because he's not being forced to remember that? They're saying, this is John Miller. And I'd love to talk to your wife for a minute. Can you get Mabel? You know, like whatever, whatever thing to instruct the friends. And then she just laughed. She thought it was so funny that it had never occurred to her that she could answer the phone or that she could tell her friends to say who they were. It was just a really simple thing, but it made a big difference. So, so I think looking at our patterns and kind of what we rely on, and if it's too much for you, so if we always did the shopping or always mowed the lawn or, you know, there's something in there that's a job to say, is that something I could ask someone to help me with? Instead of feeling frustrated every time I go and clear off the snow off my car, could I ask my neighbor, when you clear your car, can you clear mine? It would just help me so much. And, you know, maybe you bake them cookies someday with your spouse and you take the cookies over. So, so this thing of like, how can I look at the roles and functions and what can I offload? What is still really enjoyable to me? And then how do I work on my grief? So this anticipatory grief is a problem. In the beginning, it's very scary, like what's going to happen? How is it going to happen? And so there's a whole thing about getting more present while sorting out the past and then trying to visualize the, the way forward in a way that still really connects to the person's essence. So we're, we're, we're upset about all these different things that are going on. But this is such an example of impermanence and impermanence is all around us. And so being pleased and happy that there were so many years that maybe were really good and that really went well, or there might've been some years that were rocky. And at this point, you have a juncture where you can start thinking about things a little bit differently and you want to honor the relationship and care for that person. But you may also start making plans for what will happen to me when this goes forward. And you could be released from something that you haven't figured out how to release yourself from. Or you can deepen your connection in the present to find things that you also enjoy. So like an example is sometimes when I would walk with my dog, he would just want to lay in the grass. And sometimes I was just like in a hurry and I would stop myself and I would go, okay, I'm going to lay in the grass. And then I would stare at the sky and then I just wanted to endlessly stay there. I mean, it was such 
a wonderful thing and I just so enjoyed it. But life interrupts, you know, and it makes you get up and walk again because you have an appointment or you have to do something. But the dog was bringing my attention to just be here. Just feel the air. Just smell the air. Just feel the warmth. Just be in that moment. And so there's a way in which in early stages, the person often is able to tell their stories, to talk about things in a normal way. They're having trouble with word finding. You have to figure out how much support, you know, do I give them the word? Do I wait and let them find it? I don't want to be parental. I have to kind of step back and be a peer, but I have to be a little bit more objective than I have been because we've been in this relationship and all of those things. And then as they move into that more emotional time, as they get into the second stage a bit more and impulse control changes, there aren't as many filters. It's interesting because in that spousal relationship, there may be difficulties or things that the person dealt with in their life that they have put in a box, they put in a file cabinet, and it doesn't come up much. And you may be feeling things like their self-esteem is really uncertain. And it's not just from being different because of memory loss. It's because of earlier in their life, the way they grew up or their adolescence or how they were treated or not treated, what went on for them in earlier years starts percolating up and they need reassurance and validation from this much deeper place in themselves. And the only way the file cabinet got opened was because we're now on this journey with dementia. So this thing of being sensitive to why is someone being so upset or why are they saying it this way? Why are they repeating something? Why does this trigger them? So those are important things. And I want to go back to the two groups because kids or friends typically have their own life. And so they're, they've built their life. They've had this relationship with this person. Now this person needs help and they're bringing themselves into it and trying to figure it out. And then they're stepping back and getting the refreshment of this other environment that they live in. And so what some of these people struggle with is, did I make the right decisions? Am I there enough? Am I understanding what's really going on? Did I give them enough support of other people? Were they the right people? Like there's all these tensions about doing a good job with that, trying to do your best. And because it gets... Societal expectation, that comes up so much responsibility. Right. And then do I have my own children that I'm trying to raise? Do I have a difficult marriage or a great marriage? Is my career going okay? Does it have space for caregiving? I mean, there's so much tension and stress. And sometimes people have a great situation, like they have siblings who all share different roles. There's a lot of support for that person. But there are other people that are totally by themselves, or in a situation with a lot of animosity. And that's really hard. So I, I have a lot of empathy for both groups. And I would say that anytime this is entering into your life, wasn't there before, suddenly it's here, that it's giving people an opportunity to also look at their own aging, what they value, what they think is important, trying to get clearer on how do I want my life to go and what is this shining on me, I think the thing of, you know, dropping the unimportant things and really seeing what's important can be a really great part of this. There are people who can't come with you. They just don't get it. They don't get the depth 
of your upset or your sorrow or whatever. And there are other people that do. And so who are those people and how do you surround yourself with them? So I think the kids and friends tend to worry a lot about being inadequate and trying to make sure they did all the right things and then having the grief of this person changing. And that spouses really are trying to figure out what does my life mean if this person's really different and changing and how am I going to go on with my life? But how do I stay here with the right intentions to really bring the best to that person? So I, I think those both those sides are really hard. And I thank you for breaking those two groups up. I think that that's really important and so helpful to hear. One of the things that, that I heard you say also is that recognizing or honoring the person with dementia as teacher, as does that make sense? Like as the, they're teaching us so much. I, I loved your example about the, your dog and we get stuck in the tasks and the to-do lists and the, you know, step-by-step step and da, 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 and, and to pause for a moment and learn from, I mean, if there's anything that we're learning from dementia, that is living in the moment. That's this sort of mindfulness being present in the moment piece. Yeah, your book really yeah, talked about that too. So yeah, maybe you can speak a little to that. Yeah, so I, I sort of have a joke because when I worked at Naropa as a professor in the master's in gerontology program, there are all these people that are searching and there are people that have gurus and they're, you know, have a practice and they love the idea of being off in a cave for six months and really getting in touch with themselves. And I would always say the guru's right in the living room. The person that you're taking care of is really helping you see things about yourself and about the world and about your emotions, that it's such an intimate situation caring for someone else. And there are these things that happen that you just, you cannot believe the circumstance or what goes on, but you end up, it enlightens you in a way that's really authentic and really for you, like you're right there. And then this thing happens and then you're like, oh my goodness. And those gifts are treasures. So I used to talk about, we had so many teachers, like in the era of the, of the elders we were taking care of, women often were nurses or teachers or, or moms. And that now we thankfully have more diverse options for women. But as they were aging and then taking on this dementia process, taking on the dementia experience, I felt like they were helping us all get master's degree in character. And like, how can I have more character and understanding of my life? because of interacting with you and that there were searing lessons sometimes that just, you never forget. And it just changes you. And because of being in that position with them, you're available for those learnings. So I felt like if they, you know, they've had this normal full life and then they come up to aging and end up with a dementia and dementia, you know, average eight to 12 years, but even if like the last four or five years you're working with them or being around them and then they depart, like that thing of a final contribution. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, you're going to make me cry. Yeah. This final contribution that they make, like I've had a full life, but I'm still going to give you these last gifts that are really about you as a person, you as a being in the world, and then I'm going to go. And I feel like that's such a, an honor. It's such an incredible thing that they're doing. And that people would dismiss that and just see it as decline or decay or end stage or whatever. And right. it's like, no, there's been so much stuff given. 
before they leave. It's just amazing. To be able, and this this is what I think is so important, Megan, is that I'm getting chills, you know, thinking about this, this conversation, uh, but the importance of, of, again, reframing this disease and reframing people's experiences and, and how difficult that is. Like, you know, I sit there sometimes and say, who am I to say to a spouse or a, a, a daughter or a son caring for their parent? And it's almost a setup for them because because of our, our society or our culture or our medical model or, you know, it, this is such an important conversation. And I think it needs to happen more and more and more so that people open to the idea of how can this be not only a gift, but really part of part of your life journey, like looking deep within to you know, the big questions, the big questions, why are we here? What am I learning? What is my loved one learning and experiencing and, and moving through? And how are, you know, we're here together going through this thing. And there's, there's more to it than just, like you said, decay or decline, or, or somebody doesn't remember me, who they are, who you are, doesn't diminish the innate essence of their being. Right. And they're still part of the human community. As yes. long as they're here and physical, they are still part of the human community. And if they, you know, an example was maybe it's an extreme athlete who then flies off the mountain and becomes paralyzed. And they end up with these two very significant experiences of being in a physical body, high skill, and then high kind of, wow, everything is more difficult and I have to work with that. And we have brilliant people who get Alzheimer's. We have people who were very engaged in their life. And so there's this difference that happens. But in the difference, is there something else that they can explore? So, you know, there was a woman I worked with who started yelling, fire, 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 and running down the hallways, screaming and scaring everyone in the building. And when we called the husband, he's like, there wasn't any fire. I don't know what you're talking about. But then he called us the next day and he said, okay, okay, I was remembering early in our marriage, she was driving a car with my mother in it and she was in a terrible car accident, wasn't her fault. And the jaws of life had to cut them both out. And my mother died next to her as they were trying to cut them out. And we sort of dealt with it at the time, but then we never talked about it again. So then the next time she was yelling, fire, 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 we realized that was what she was talking about, that there were all the ambulances, everything was there. We worked with validation. We brought her somewhere else. We let her have her feelings. We talked about the experience. And she really thought she had killed her mother-in-law. Like inwardly, she felt like she had caused her death. So she'd been sitting on that for like 45 years. And every time she did that, we would go through the same thing. And it was it was challenging for the staff to deal with that much emotion. They weren't used to it. They were like scared. But she would be very, very upset. She would express all these things, be very upset. And then she would you know, calm down. And over a six-month period, she did it less frequently. She did it less intensely. She got relieved quicker by what we were saying. We kind of figured out how to work with it. And then about, I don't know how many months after nine months or something, she lost her speech. And I was so amazed that this disease process gave her the chance with this disinhibition 
to be able to pull that lid off and then access this horrible feeling in her life that she had held all of her life that she thought she killed her mother-in-law and then us being able to help her expunge it and validate her and reassure her and allow her to just express whatever it was she needed and that then it felt like this got healed for her before she left yes and you didn't medicate you didn't medicate her or send her off to geropsych or you know i I love, thank you for sharing that story. I, I have a similar one. One of the residents I was working with in a skilled nursing, it was the nursing home wing. She wasn't in memory care because she was in a wheelchair. So she wasn't exit seeking, but she was telling the staff that she had killed her father, that she shot, that he shot her dad. That was, this was the story. And she was all anxious and upset and people are, Oh, that didn't really, you know, they just kind of, oh, she has dementia. And, and I worked with her. This is one of the first clients that I had for, for my counseling work. And, oh my and it was, it was fascinating, you know, meeting her where she was and using those validation techniques, because I truly believe, just as you said, that our work together helped her sort through. So we found, we did find out, I, I did some research with her family and it was, it was a family secret and only one family member knew about this. It really did happen. And there was some abuse that occurred with her and her sister. And she as a little girl took action. And and, and obviously it was traumatic and haunting her and, and her older, you know, later years. Yeah, I'm getting chills again thinking about it. But the re- I do believe that we are always trying to resolve these, these experiences in life. And whether we have our cognition intact or not, there is more to us than, than that. There, there right. is felt sense that still right. also needs to work through those things. And so, yeah, what, what important work. And again, the, the importance of not just jumping to, you know, the, the term challenging behaviors. And I, I always ask families or, or professionals even, who, who is it challenging for? You know, is it challenging... Right for the person that has memory impairment, or is it challenging to the caregivers? (laughs) Because those are two completely different approaches that you would take when supporting individuals. And so thanks for sharing that. The other quick story I want to tell you is there was a man that was incredibly mean. You know, so often we hear people become violent or angry or whatever with dementia. Well, this person was really, really nasty as as a man to his children, to his wife. And his wife was a very beleaguered kind of person. Like she was exhausted when she came. She'd been trying to care for him at home. And he had estranged all of his children. So his children hadn't talked to him for years. So they were nowhere around. And then he came to our building for adult day. Then he moved in and then the wife passed. So then there was this need to contact the kids and say, can one of you step up as the power of attorney or whatever? And it took months. No one would respond. No one would come. And finally, this son came, and it had been about two years by this point that he had lived in the building. And he said, I'm the only one that can come. I, I, I don't really want to be here. I don't even want to see him. But in the two years that he had been there, he had become this really loving person. And every time he saw people, he had this incredible smile, and he'd wink at you, and he would, like, touch your face and go, you are so wonderful. And he'd would do all this stuff. So the staff adored him. The staff thought he was fabulous. They had no idea 
that he had this history of someone that was very attacking, kind of aggressive, really mean person. So we said, no, 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 come and watch him. So he came and watched him, and then he worked up his nerve to visit him. He came another time, and he kept, you saw him, like, physically, like, waiting for the shoe to drop. He thought his dad was going to start yelling at him or whatever, and they had this lovely time. So then he came again, and he came again, and then he brought his own kids, and he brought his guitar, and they would sing, and they would hang out, and they'd laugh, and he couldn't believe it. And he kept trying to convince his siblings to come, but nobody, nobody else would come, and when he died... Uh, his son was playing guitar. The kids, grandkids were all there. Everybody's around him. He'd wake up and smile at people and then go back to sleep. And then when he passed, the son came out and said, oh, my God, this whole experience completely changed the way I viewed my entire life, that I had a chance to love my father. And then my father loved me and I felt it. It healed all of that. I just, you know. Oh, the beautiful story. Uh, thank you for sharing that too. I, the opportunity that that can bring for resolution for uh, all the unfinished business, whether that it's how that unfinished business happened directly to the person who had the disease or the family members that that's impacted. Because we know we know that trauma is passed down through family and and it can be felt on a on a cellular level even there's so many studies about inherited trauma and, and all of that and it stopped there it stopped there for him and his children right like that's beautiful wow megan you are so amazing i we are definitely going to have another podcast <laughs> i know I so much I love this I love this discourse I just think it's fabulous and it's needed again I I mean it fills my spirit I'm tearing I'm wiping tears from my eyes and it's just needed in this world especially now and so can you please tell our listeners how can they find out more about you tell tell them how to reach you or what you have to offer tell them the name of your book again. Sure. I want to share you with the world. <laughs> Yay, thank you. So the book is a deeper perspective on Alzheimer's and other dementias, practical tools with spiritual insights. And it has my name, Megan Carnerius. It's available, Simon & Schuster has picked it up and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's been translated into Dutch, Italian, and French, which is really fun. And I have, I have read it for Audible. So if you want to hear your books instead of reading them, you can listen to me on Audible. On you the read it. You read it. You yeah. did. The, oh, my gosh. I can't wait. To, I, I love yeah. Audible, so I'll be doing that. Yeah. And then my website is www.memorycareconsulting.com. And if you go in there, I'm working on an educational program to put online in the fall and if you want to be on a mailing list you can sign up and if you want to contact me for a consult and i can it, it's better if you email me through the website and then i can explain what consults look like but i do phone and zoom consults and i help families kind of when they're at a crux trying to figure out what's next or what stage are we in or maybe the caregiver needs support or maybe there's something challenging happening that they just need a little help so i'm a little different like i'm not like a case manager that is always on the case. I'm more of a person you call when you're like, ah, I need a little bit of extra insight here or a direction. 
and I can be pretty helpful with that. And I also do like workshops and educational programs. So I do them for faith communities and I will travel. And so if people want me to come and do some teaching for their organization, I'm happy to do it. And I know, you know, COVID affected all of us who do education that we're not, <laughs> we're not out in the world as much, but even the Zoom, Zoom kinds of things I can do. So that's, yeah. So thank you so much for having me today. It's oh, really thank, great. thank you, Megan, really. And and I want to just remind our listeners too, that if you, because we talked about so many things, we touched on a lot of things. I know, like you said, Megan, we could go a lot deeper on. So as, as a listener of this podcast, if you have topic ideas, please feel free to um, message me and I will, I will make sure that we address those questions or those topics. My email for the podcast is info at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Thank you everyone so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to info at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.